Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. And we hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. So queuing up for day two in the blue zone. Um, We've had quite a night last night. We were at the Carbon Brief quiz, the Strathomatics team, which I was repeatedly reminded wasn't the most imaginative team name. Um, But we we did our university proud. We we came a respectable sort of middle of the bottom half of the table. So not relegation, but we weren't exactly bringing home the silverware. But we had a really good time, had some fantastic colleagues there. Um, it was great to, just to get together with many of them I haven't even seen before. And if I had, it was before the pandemic. And it was just great to sort of get together and, and hear about their experiences of COP. So it sounds like everybody's had a really good time. Um, a few bags under the ice as the negotiations start to, to draw out and also become far, far, far more serious. So, um, yeah, a balance. I think people were letting off a bit of steam last night. Um, but also aware that they've got three or four really hard days ahead. So back into the blue zone, back through security, and back to try and enjoy a few more events and, and uh, be reporting back more later. Right now, today, electric vehicles are less than 5% of sales globally in 2021. We need to get to 100% by 2035, essentially. Um, that is not going to happen just with market forces alone. But there's also issues, questions about what about these batteries once those vehicles have been uh, come to the end of life. Especially in Namibia, we have so many challenges and, and those challenges are also similar to some other parts of the planet. We need to address collectively the reduction of uh, carbon emission. Okay, so we've sat through a really fascinating plenary on electrification of transport with very strong global focus. I think most listeners have possibly thought, um, particularly if they're UK-based, you know, electrification of transportation is about us, you know, purchasing an EV, whether that's, you know, in your block of flats or a suburban semi. Um, but this really took a global focus and trying to put that transition into context for the entire planet. I think the big challenge that we have is that uh, between now and 2050, we're going to add about a billion vehicles 
to the global fleet. And 90%, actually 99% of that billion vehicles is going to be added in low and middle income countries. Some really shocking statistics first. Another billion new vehicles on the road. And the bulk of these, uh, unless we do something about it, will be internal combustion engines. Crucially, two out of three of these vehicles, and when we say vehicles, we're talking light duty vehicles, cars, small vans, and the like, two out of three will be in developing countries um, or, or other countries we may sort of refer to as BRIC countries or um, countries like India, China. And we're seeing these, these markets explode in terms of vehicle use as they become richer, as there is more disposable income, as there is a larger middle class. Vehicle ownership is something which is rocketing. The question is how the Kenyans of this world, the Vietnams and the Perus, how are they going to join this global shift to zero emissions mobility, to electric mobility? But these markets represent potential huge opportunities for growth of EVs. And they have the potential to leapfrog where we were, uh, the equivalent kind of point of, of uh, economic development. They're able to leapfrog because they can import the vehicles which are being produced in other countries. So there's, there's a real emphasis here on ensuring that the cars that they buy today and tomorrow can be as low emission as possible. Now today, only 5% of vehicle sales are EVs. And there is a real emphasis here that to meet our net zero goals, that 80% of uh, surface transport emissions need to be cut by 2050. And that requires us to increase that 5% share of new vehicle sales as EVs from 5% today to 100% by 2035. Electric vehicles powered by renewable energy are pretty much the only way you can do it with cars. Um, so that is really what we have to focus on. And if we have to get the entire fleet there by 2050, in order to have enough time to turn the fleet over, we need to have 100% sales by 2035. That's why these kind of short-term targets to get electric vehicles into the fleet by 2035 are so critical. The question is, you know, some countries are a much better place. We have countries like Norway, which, you know, according to this talk, the percentage of new vehicle sales are around the 90% mark. But in the UK, we're nudging up to 10%. So there's some countries that are positioned as, as primed and ready to move very, very quickly indeed. One thing I wanted to, uh, to mention is that uh, a key trend in the, in the global car market is the fact that there are more and more SUVs, so larger cars. The market share of these type of vehicles increased from 20% in 2005 to 44% in 2019. That is a huge increase. And uh, these cars consume about 30% more than medium-sized vehicles. And um, they, they're making it harder for decarbonization and for the efficiency of the fleet to go ahead. So how do we get there? How do we ensure that the bulk of sales, 100% uh, vehicle sales, are EVs by 2035? Well, uh, some really interesting uh, points in terms of policies. Firstly, stop subsidizing fossil fuels. Secondly, tax fossil fuels instead. Uh, carbon pricing, cap and trade. We also need technical standards to ensure that the vehicles we are producing are as low emissions as possible and as efficient as, as possible. We also need to keep decarbonizing power to ensure that the power that is feeding into these vehicles is clean. And 
one thing that was was positioned as a, as a real possible uh, solution by a chap called Lou Fulton from UCU Davis, um, alongside those other policies, was we need to mandate a minimum share of EVs sold in countries. First of all, foundationally, we think you have to stop subsidizing fossil fuels, and then they need to be taxing fossil fuels, and probably carbon pricing is the way to go. And I think we can uh, target zero emission vehicle requirements that many countries may find that basically over time just require that a certain number of zero emission vehicles are sold. In a sense, technology forced them into the marketplace. So there's there's real opportunities. And I think this kind of feeds into the the decision making that we as individuals, we as communities make, that localized decision making. Do I opt for an EV? Well, the price needs to be right. And it's no good making fossil fuel vehicles and the fuel that they run on cheap. So another fascinating talk. I'm about to run into um, other events now and I'll reflect on those later. But yeah, coming thick and fast. Uh, um, yeah, really enjoyed that one. I'm Aslu. Um, I'm a PhD researcher at Science Policy Research Unit. Um, I investigate role of data and data policies in electric mobility development. Uh, I'm Yao Shi. I'm from the same institution. I'm currently looking at the carbon emission if people work from home in the UK. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm also looking at the energy efficiency of companies in the UK. Right, so two big topics. So electric mobility, energy, energy consumption, energy efficiency, particularly working from home. So in that regard, over the last 18 months, many of us have been having to work from home because of COVID. Uh, so how is your PhD research kind of exploring the potential for working from home to reduce energy consumption and help save the planet? Well, the answer might be a bit disappointing because we found out teleworkers may consume more energy because they have more non-commute trips. Like they do more shopping, pick up school kids, and uh, they live also further away from their workplaces. So these factors make um, teleworkers actually consume more. Um, but what we do find is it all depends on the individuals. If we all change our behaviors, then it's going to be a very positive change. It's a very uh, significant change if we can all take actions such as um, turn the heating off if we're not using it, such as live closer to your workplace, such as using um, green transportation. Mm -hmm. so, so what is making, is it because everybody's running their own boiler at the same time? How are we consuming more energy Per person through working from home? Because if you think about the space you have at home, you have your own office which can take mm -hmm. the entire bedroom, but if you are in the office, it's only a desk. So, in this sense, it saves uh, energy if you work from the office. Yeah. And also, if you work from home, the research, um, a lot of previous researchers have found out that people travel further. So, even if you work from home, you still travel to work like once a month or once a week. And for this, once a week, you travel much, much further than the five times a week you do. Uh, so, this makes the total effect not very positive. Okay, I mean, that, that's, that's headline grabbing. So, before we move on to the next set of events, which are surely happening somewhere around here, how have you found COP? Has it been what you expected? I mean, I did not have much uh, expectations. So what I can say that there is a huge diversity, which I really liked. And then also what I saw um, exciting is that um, in most of the sessions that I attended, 
we see majority of speakers or like equal number of speakers are, are female so I feel like there's a there's a highlight of um, gender in this and, and today of course that it's co-badged gender equality and also innovation um, but but yeah I, I would agree with you I think we've we've seen a strong representation uh, and you know just from your perspective do you think this format do you think cop as is as you've experienced it is this the right format to get what we need which is global climate action well uh, for me it's better than I expected uh, so the good things are very obvious we can uh, concentrate about all these experts' views, but um, what I would find better would be to include the general public better. So we know all these institutions or organizations, they're having protests uh, and the public awareness yeah. were being raised in this way. So if we could include them and make it more combined, yeah. it would be it, much it, it does feel, I mean, they are quite literally walled out. Uh, so I, I would completely agree with that. Well, listen, I won't keep you from the next event. Thank you. It's getting cold out here now. The sun's gone in. Um, and we shall run off in our opposite directions for the next event. But thank you and enjoy the rest of COP. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. So running from event to event, we've just been locked out sadly of a fascinating talk um, which was a response to the IPCC's report and trying to understand about how we can keep 1.5 degrees alive. We're locked out but that's okay because I've just met somebody fascinating. Trina, if you could maybe introduce yourself, your background and what, what, what you're sort of undertaking at the moment. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much and uh, thank you Matthew. It was great meeting you in line and uh, yeah, my name is Trina Karani. I'm uh, running for Congress in Southern California in an area that's within a county called Riverside County, for those of you from the UK, might be familiar with Orange County, and we're just east of the OC. Um, my area is called the Inland Empire, and it's one of those areas that are very much hit by climate change, right? We're seeing increased wildfire risk. We have one of the worst air quality in the nation. California is in a drought at the moment, um, and there's so many things that we're facing with climate change. You always think of it as this big global risk, but really we're seeing it at home. I'm an engineer. Uh, my background's actually in mechanical engineering. I worked in energy efficiency. I was helping um, companies transition off of fossil fuels into clean energy. Um, I started a couple of companies in the sustainability space and I'm now helping underrepresented entrepreneurs get access to capital. And I've realized that there's just so much that needs to be done in fighting climate change and making sure that we have what we need to make sure that we can take care of our futures, right? I think that's one of the, the biggest issues that we're seeing is that we're not hitting these commitments. We're seeing countries make all of these, you know, bold proclamations, you know, making announcements saying what they're going to do, but we're still here after the Paris Agreement years later saying, Let, let's keep those goals alive. That's one of the language that we've heard today is let's keep 1.5 alive and the fact that we haven't hit it I think is a really big problem. So on that obviously the US has been ravaged by extreme weather we in the UK are acutely aware of the forest fires and the bushfires that have been sort of raging across the state. To what extent is that translating at a local level? Are your average communities, households 
when you're speaking to citizens, is this something, is the penny starting to drop? Are people starting to appreciate the scale of this and starting to mobilize? Or are, or are people still sticking their heads in the sand and hoping this kind of goes away? It's one of those things that you realize from the very beginning. When I was young, I remember seeing ash fall from the sky when I was at school. Right? I remember being on the blacktop once you got out of school and it was too hot to be out there, so we had to be called back in. And that's only getting worse. And so as climate change continues to get worse, a lot of those things hit home more than ever, right? Where the same mask that we were wearing for COVID, that was N95s, we're wearing something very similar for wow. fire season, right? So it's, it's one of those things that you are starting to see those effects. California is in a drought. Um, we've always had issues with water. We've always had issues with air quality, especially in our region, because yeah. it is such a major transportation yeah. hub as well. Um, so people are seeing the effects of climate change here yeah. at home. But, but it also costs a tremendous amount. I was watching the Netflix documentary, which I think was recorded a few years ago. I forget the name of it, but it followed Cal Fire and explored you know, their, how that fire season had grown from maybe three months of the year now to six months and even longer. They're having fires at times. So the cost was amazing to me, like the size of the outfit. So are local citizens also looking at this and saying, this isn't just an existential threat. This adaptation, this climate adaptation is also expensive. 100%. I think that's one of the, the biggest arguments that we have, right, is that we're insuring against our futures. We know this is something that's happening. It's something that we've been experiencing, and it's only getting worse. And so us making sure that we're not only mitigating, but also finding these adaptation plans for, for climate change is securing our futures, right? So this isn't just about what we've experienced in the past, what we're experiencing now. It's knowing that it is getting worse. And by adhering to these commitments, we actually have a chance at having a cleaner, a more sustainable, and just a, a future that we actually want to live in. So let me bring that then to the, you know, the, the hot topic in US politics at the moment, the infrastructure bill. Um, and as I understand it, I think as we speak right now, it hasn't been, been passed, although it's being revised and edited and, and, you know, in terms of pressure within the Democratic Party and, of course, outside. So what are your hopes for this? You know, firstly, what do you see kind of passing? And, and do you think it's enough to get the U.S., get Southern California to where we need to be to, to avoid catastrophic climate change? Yeah, I mean, I think we're always going to need more and more aggressive climate agendas, right? I think that's a big part of why I'm running in the first place is because... We know there's certain things, certain compromises that you may have to make just to sort of get things across the line, and that's a first step, but you're always going to need more, and it's going to need to be more fact-based, more evidence-based, as the facts and the evidence continue to evolve with all the new science that's coming out. And so, um, you know, the report that we're missing right now, especially as we're talking about some of the, the latest changes that are coming out, it's saying that we're in a better position to actually hit our climate goals if we just find the path to get there, right, than we were when the Paris Agreement was signed. And so I think there is more evidence coming out that we're going to be able to get there, but we're going to need really, really aggressive pathways. I wish you all the very best and uh, hope you have an enjoyable cop and a safe trip home if and when it ever ends. Thanks so much for having me. Another day of cop in the can. We've, we're out of the blue zone now, heading home. Um, yeah, really starting to feel the strain of it now. We're, no, this is Wednesday. I'm, no, sorry, Tuesday. I don't even know the day, so it gives you some sense. Tuesday of week two. Um, yeah, and, you know, kind of grazing on stuff and enjoying what I can. 
think the longer you probably spend in the uh, you know in the blue zone, the more you probably become frustrated about the things that you're missing or the things you're not allowed into. I think there's been a real issue this year of of there being you know the, the delegates to uh, space for the delegates. You know that that ratio. So I think I've heard estimates of about forty thousand delegates um, for COP. But you know the, the space is once you put in social distancing, you're just simply unable to enjoy some of the events that you're wanting to uh, observe. But, you know, that's okay. There's, there's plenty going on there, bumping into lots of interesting folk. But it really does feel... Often COP is framed as a conference within a conference, and I think that division has become even more severe this year because of COVID. Um, I guess wider themes that I'm kind of picking up, one is... You know, the balance between net and real zero. So net zero, how much we're netting off, how much we're relying on offsetting, how much we're relying on carbon storage. And, you know, the the number of pledges you hear from countries and companies that include a significant amount of offsetting. The question is, you know, who's who's kind of totting up all these, these offsets together and understanding whether it's realistic. You know, I think I made the point earlier on that for some of these companies and countries, you'd need multiple planets to do it. So for me, the, the potentially wicked word in all of this is net. And it remains to be seen how much countries can rely, and indeed companies can rely on the net of net zero to, to get them through. Um, but, you know, enjoying, I think, the pavilion events. We've seen some fascinating stuff there. Um, Global Wind Energy Council, uh, WWF, uh, holding some really excellent events. But it's another day done for me. I'm pooped, heading off. And what is cool, actually, is I'm using a transport card, a smart card, which has been provided to all delegates from uh, for COP. And this gives me access for all forms of public transport across Scotland, across all modes of public transport. Not something that is easily available today. Um, And I think there's a lot for Glasgow and Scotland to learn. If I could buy this card for a week during busy times, I'd do it in a flash. Absolutely. And and as I say this, I just hear another electric bus roll by almost silently. Um, This is the future. Easy access, affordable and clean public transport. We're doing it for COP. One of the great legacies of COP26 would be to do this forever. Okay, right, that's me, off on the train. Catch you soon. Produced by Bespoken Media.